I'll just say that I have a bit of a scratchy voice. It's allergy season here in Ithaca. My first, uh, would you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you now. Amen. One of the gifts and uh, legacies that I'm hoping to leave to my children is helping them figure out how to properly integrate into their conversations in the world um, jokes about people's mothers. Uh, your, your mom jokes. We try to practice this in my house. And um, it's funny when we use it with our kids. So I say, you know, they'll do something silly and I'll be like, well, your mom does something. But the thing is that your mom is usually in the room or not too far. Uh, it's, it's not going great because we were at a, we were at a recent get together and there were other kids there and there was a family there and our son who is not here this morning, uh, tried this out with somebody else there. He said, your mom is such and such. And the problem is that when you're seven, you don't understand social cues exactly. And it does, you know, usually comes off as an insult if it's not done. Well, we've recovered from it, I think. But, um, the thing about um, joking about somebody's mother is that motherhood and the relationship with mothers is a very sensitive thing, isn't it? All of us have a mother. Many of us have complicated relationships with our mothers. Mothers who are here among us have sometimes complicated relationships with their children. I do want to acknowledge on Mother's Day that it is an immense blessing to be in this world. And it is a hard thing to be in this world. Some of us are mourning today or grieving or just confused about our relationship with our mothers. If that's through you, you're absolutely not alone. Martin Luther, uh, I think it was the one who was credited with saying this though. Nobody can have God as their father without having the church as his mother. It's a remarkable thing for somebody to say who is, in fact, probably the one who most kicked off that movement of church renewal that resulted in there being so many fractured churches in the world. That's not to blame him necessarily for that, but it is just the way that history has gone. So for Luther to say, for you to belong to God means to have the church of Jesus Christ as your mother is a remarkable statement. I don't think he meant the local congregation, so much as your mother, but the big capital C church. The one that finds its way into the creed that we'll say together in a minute. The church. The church in all of its story, in all of its parts, in all of its historical trajectory, in all of its geographical diversity, and even all of its mistakes. Mothers are not perfect, at least. If I were a mother, I would not be perfect. Some of you might be perfect. But the church's mother also remains imperfect for us. And yet she's still our mother, Luther says. So I want to talk to you uh, for a few minutes about one of my favorite things, your mother, the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure where this came from. Some of one of you can fact check this for me. It's a thing I didn't have time to look up beforehand. I'll tell you this. In the tradition of Christian theology, sometimes the designation for characterizing the church in two different ages comes something like this. 
the church triumphant, or the church militant, the church in its life, the church in its final glory. So I want to look at both of those with you for a minute. So if you want to look at the text from Revelation in your bulletin, you can. I want to draw your attention just to a couple things. This image of the church in its triumph, the church in its perfected state, the church before the throne of the Lamb of God. This is your people, brothers and sisters. This is our people. This is where we are headed. And if we're going to be able to walk on the long road that Jesus told us to carry our cross and follow him, we better look ahead to the hope that's before us. And we see there something that we don't always see in our culture today, and that is a church of a full and rich diversity. Look in verse 9. After I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, four different indicators of diversity, a way of indicating that this is, in fact, a rich multitude of diversity. There is no one common language that everybody needs to learn to be participating in it. There is no one common culture that is part of the church of Jesus Christ. It is, it includes all of those without reducing them. It doesn't say everybody melted into one giant Crayola mass of crayons like the bit that melted in the back of our car. It's rich in its diversity. And it's rich and it's present because it has washed itself in the blood of the Lamb. It has made, been made clean from its failures. And it has taken on in the blood of the Lamb the life of the one who came to live as the full embodiment of God's presence on the earth. And so it is clean. And it is not just clean and having its sins taken away, but it is rich and vibrant, and it expresses the life and desire of God. And after all of this great tribulation that it comes through, it is finally comforted. They shall hunger no more or thirst any more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes and my eyes and the eyes of those you care about whom you cannot fully comfort right now. That's where we're headed. But we're not there yet, are we? We should look at Acts for a second. Paul and his companions are in the city in Antioch. And he gives a speech at the synagogue Because to live as part of the church, militant now, if we want to use that language, the church on its mission, the church as it is going forward on pilgrimage, means to do something unique. And we see it over and over in the, in the book of Acts. We're seeing it in this season as we're kind of giving special place to the book of Acts, that the, that the followers of Jesus Christ, especially his apostles who are commissioned to this, but everybody in fact, are holding forth the truth of God to a world that thinks it is foolish, that doesn't understand it and yet sometimes comes to glimpse it and join in the work. There is, in fact, a meta-narrative, a giant story that is part of what the church is holding forth. God has promised some things to our forefathers and mothers. God has promised to our ancestors to do something, and he has done it. 
And it is at work here in our midst. Part of the church's calling is to hold forth this story, to proclaim it, to unpack it, to, to, under, to expose both for ourselves, because this is not an always easy thing, always an easy thing, and for the world, how this makes sense. How God, the story of God in the world is explained by the story of God's work in Israel and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. There's sometimes in the history of scholarship certain words and phrases that get repeated so often that you forget where they come from. And here's one of them. Well, when Jesus came in preaching, he preached the kingdom of God. But what we ended up with was the church. There's a little bit of disappointment in the, in the phrase, and I, uh, I understand it. Jesus did come proclaiming the kingdom of God. And what we do have now as the manifestation of that is the church I think this is intentional. What Paul is saying when he cites the second psalm, Psalm 2 and verse 33. Listen to this. We bring you, this is starting the previous verse, 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us his children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you look to Psalm 2 in your Bibles, you can find this psalm that begins this way. You're my son, today I've forgotten you. Um, It doesn't begin that way, but it's there. And it is a royal psalm. If the form critics are right, that this has been uh, written in such a way to celebrate the enthronement of Israel's king, then it's a song that celebrates how God has taken Israel's king and adopted Israel's king as the divine son who's going to do for the people what God would have... uh, was going to officiate the life of God for the people to administer that. So when Paul says that God has, that this is actually speaking of Jesus in his resurrection, the implication is that in the resurrection of Jesus, in this Easter season that we're celebrating, something has happened. God has raised Jesus from the dead and made him king, sitting him at God's right hand in heaven, as we're also going to say in the creed in a minute again. And so one of the things that you notice as you read the book of Acts is that this resurrection of Jesus is expounded using the language of the Psalms. Specifically Psalms that talk about raising Jesus up. And Paul, and Peter does this again in Acts 2, which we'll read on Pentecost in a couple Sundays. He says, wait a minute, if David is talking about this, if the Lord, he says, the Lord has said to me, I have, um, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David died, didn't he? And he was buried. So the apostles are saying, aha, the psalmist must be speaking about the one who would not see corruption in the tomb, the one whose body would not decay, the one whom God would not ever abandon to death. He has raised him up. Which means that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated because he is, in fact, king. Now, the hard thing with this is that it's a kingdom that we don't always see, it's invisible. Or rather, it is visible when you and I and our life together make it visible. To hold forth this kind of narrative, to hold forth this kind of interpretation of the world means to encounter opposition, sometimes within ourselves, but certainly in the world around us. It is not always, to everyone, a compelling story. 
our reading for Acts ends, but we see that there's conflict and there's a division in the city of Antioch as a result of this teaching. And in our gospel reading from John 10, this opposition is already present in the life of Jesus. I do want to say something briefly. John uses a strange way of speaking about those Jewish followers of Jesus who are present with him in his ministry. John frequently speaks of the Jews. And scholars are at pay, have struggled with how to understand this phrase. To many of us, most of us in this room are probably not Jewish. And it's easy, 2,000 years later, and in a largely Gentile, largely non-Jewish church, to think of the Jews as a whole monolith of the Jewish people. But if you think about it for a second, you realize that it's problematic to read it that way in the Gospel of John, because Jesus is Jewish. In fact, he's called a Jew by the Samaritan woman in John 4. That's where he says also that salvation is from the Jews. I think, and this is a difficult topic, but I think what is happening is that there, in the life of the early church, in John's community, there is a kind of tension over the question of who is a eudios, who is a true Jew. You might remember in Paul's letter to Romans, uh, to the Roman church, he uses this phrase, if you call yourself a Jew, and he goes on, there is possibly a context in which people are saying, non-Christian members of the synagogue are saying, you, you're not truly Jews. And it seems maybe that John has said in John's community, the way it has allowed for that change of semantics to happen. Okay, you're the true Jews. We'll call them the Jews. But we're not getting here, and I just want to make this as a footnote before we go on. What we're not getting here is a statement that all of the Jewish people are against Jesus. Okay? We could talk about that more later if you want. Less than a century after the Holocaust, we ought to be careful about how we speak about the Jews. Okay. What does Jesus offer to you and to me if we are in this moment of the life of the church militant, walking and following Jesus living out this calling to proclaim, to bear witness to the story of what God is doing and living out in our hands and feet and our lives of service. Some of you came and helped uh, a neighbor do some gardening work yesterday. That was great. Small acts of kindness are not trivial, even if they're small. They can, they can say, I see you. God has not forgotten you. We belong to one another. We help one another. But what does Jesus offer in by way of comfort and consolation to us on this path with him. He offers the promise of his knowledge of us and his presence with us. Listen to verse 27 in John. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. They may be cast out from their families. They may be cast out from the synagogue. They may be exiles wandering the earth, poor and destitute. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. We are held in the hands of God as we walk the path of Jesus that looked unlikely and to many of his contemporaries uncompelling but was in fact the way of bringing life. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. One of my favorite images for what it might look like for the church to live out the kind of militancy, which is, I recognize, a charged word that Jesus is calling for, is a man named Father Paolo. Father Paolo was an Italian monk who moved to the land of Syria uh, about 30 years ago. In a largely Muslim context, uh, he was the abbot of a monastery out in the wilderness in Syria. And a couple friends of mine uh, met at that monastery. One was a monk, uh, or he was pursuing the monastic calling. Uh, he, uh, so he was a novice, he hadn't yet taken monastic vows. He was living there. And another was a young woman who was considering becoming a nun. And they met at this monastery and uh, began uh, a strange love story uh, that involved, involved them eventually falling in love. And um, one day Father Paolo married them and they now live uh, in the Middle East serving the church together there. Father Paolo was last heard about 10 years ago when my friend Stephanie was speaking with him on a Zoom call and he was explaining that he felt that after living for years, (laughs) thank you brother, yeah it's a allergy season, after living for years in this land where he was, it was a Christian monastery in the context of a, a, a Muslim community and serving and living with and speaking the language of their Muslim neighbors and seeing what was happening with the encroachment of ISIS in the region, he felt this calling of Jesus to go take the message of love of enemy and to the leaders of ISIS, to plead with them, to plead with them to not destroy their own people. And those who loved him pleaded with Father Paolo saying, don't go, you're just going to your death. You're just going to your death. And he said, I have to go. And he knew. And so he went. And that was the last anybody's heard of him. Was he effective? I don't know. Did he follow in the way of Jesus? I think so. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of life of witness bearing, of truth telling, of not believing that we are someplace else other than in our Father's hands. And he will shepherd and care for us and wipe away every tear from our eyes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.